Thanks, Jack. Good evening. I want to um, I want to start by addressing all my fellow spectacle wearers out there. Can I hear a whoop whoop? Well done. Um, I wonder if you can remember the first time that you put on a pair of glasses. Um, for me, it was when I was about 24, 25 years old. You might have had weeks or months, maybe even years of sort of impaired vision and not being able to see things uh, properly. But then the glasses went on. I wonder if you remember it. And it was like seeing the world clearly for the first time. I remember going out of the opticians and just thinking, wow, everything is so sharp and, and clear. Um, aware of signs in the shops and things coming into focus in the distance. You might have got home and looked in the mirror and thought, wow, I didn't know I looked quite like that. Uh, with all those spots and blemishes that you were quite happy not seeing before then. The world um, came into focus and, and, and we came into focus. And I want to say that knowing God is a little bit like that. It's like putting on glasses for the first time. I wonder if you can remember back to the first quote that we began with um, in week one of this series. I'd be very impressed if you did, but it was Jim Packer um, saying that if we go through life ignorant of God, it's like going through life blindfold. Not just with slightly impaired vision, but blindfolded, not knowing what life is all about, not knowing why we're here, not knowing where this world is heading. But the opposite is also true, isn't it? If we come to know the God of this universe and we come to deepen our knowledge of him, then the world comes into sharper focus and our lives come into sharper focus and we know why we're here and we know the God who rules this world. We can live our lives through the ups and downs of life. And nowhere is this more true, I think, than in our understanding of God's omnipotence. Now, omnipotence means that God is all-powerful. He's the all-powerful, perfectly able ruler of this world. And so I want to invite you tonight to uh, put on a new pair of glasses as we think about God's omnipotence and to begin to see the world differently. That uh, quote on the sheet uh, is written by somebody called John Calvin, who is a 16th century French theologian. He's really important in the European uh, Reformation of the 16th century. And he wrote these words about God's omnipotence. He uses the word providence, which means God's good and powerful ruling over creation. He said this, the ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. So this topic, however you might be feeling about it tonight, is not something to run away from. It's something to run towards and to embrace and to rejoice in, the knowledge that God is omnipotent. It's something that can bring us deep comfort and assurance and joy. That's my aim tonight as we get into this topic, to bring those things to us from God's word. So I want to think first um, in this talk about God's right to rule this world. God's right, as we think about God as our rightful Lord in a children's song um, that we sometimes sing at church, we sing the words, the Lord is king. If you know it, he's going to look after everything. We just sung about awake, awake, O Zion, and acknowledge the king of this world. Something that Christians say, isn't it? God is king. God is Lord. God is the ruler. But what do we mean when we talk like that? What does it mean for God to be the king? Well, the first thing to acknowledge from the Bible is that God has the right to rule his world. He has the right to rule his world. 
I think we can be very sceptical of any sort of power or authority in our world. Just think of the famous line that's often quoted, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. What does that say about our understanding of power? Well, it's viewed as a negative thing, isn't it? And words like authority and responsibility and perhaps even things like leadership are negative words in our society. And that can easily play into our thinking about God. We find it very hard to let God be God, to let him be the ruler and to acknowledge him as our king and as our Lord. But this is what the Bible urges us to do, to embrace the reality that God has absolute authority and legitimate authority to rule this world however he pleases. You might be wondering, what gives God the right to do that? What gives God the right to rule this world? Well, the answer the Bible gives to that is that God is our creator. We've seen that a few times in this series, if you've been here, this idea that God is our creator and we are his creatures. And here's one really significant implication of God being our creator. It means he has the right to rule this world. Have a look at a few references um, on your sheet. Firstly, 1 Chronicles verse 29, uh, chapter 29, uh, verses 10 and 11. Here, David is praising the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly of people. He says, praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendour for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So David here praises God and says that God is the one who possesses all greatness, all power, all glory, all majesty, all splendour. And the reason that God possesses those things is there in verse 11, just towards the middle of verse 11. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Everything belongs to God. He is the owner of his creation. We'll have a look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So do you see again that his power is tied to the fact that he is our creator? That's why he's worthy of all power, because he made everything. Or think about Isaiah 45. These uh, verses were quoted in Romans last week, if you hear in, in Romans groups. Isaiah 45 verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? So it's the clay speaking back to the potter and saying, what are you doing? Why are you making me like this? What are you, what are you playing at? But Isaiah wants to say that God is the creator and we are his creatures and God has the right to rule every inch of his creation in the way that pleases him. David says this in Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Now this doesn't mean that God is a cold, distant God who doesn't care about the creation he has made. Sometimes we think that, I think when we have that potter and uh, pots analogy that we think God is, is cold and distant. But he's more like a master painter who takes great care and delight 
in his creation, who cares about every brushstroke and every detail and every person in this world who's intimately involved. He's our loving creator, but he is our creator. He owns this world. It belongs to him. Every creature in the sky, every creature in the sea, the stars in the heavens, the people who walk around on earth, me and you tonight, we belong to God. We are owned by the creator of this universe. He's the rightful Lord. But he doesn't just have the right to rule. And the second thing we're going to think about is that he also has the might to rule. He has both right and might. God is our powerful and good Lord. We still need to ask, don't we, how does God rule his world? He might be the owner of everything, he might be the creator of everything, but how does he rule as king? What does that look like for God? How involved is he in his creation? Is he like a father playing brio with his children? Let me explain what I mean by that. Wooden train sets like brio are a wonderful thing. And if you need confirmation, Jack Graham's the man uh, to talk to. As the master builder, if you're building a wooden train set like Brio, you can build it in whatever way you please, with tunnels and bridges and twists and turns all over the place. And you can step back and survey your beautiful work of art. The problem is your children also want to play with it. And so they bulldoze in, they start pushing trains around and breaking bridges, having fun, how dare they? And you, as the master builder, have to watch as your creation gets gradually destroyed. Now, as a father, um, I'm guessing Jack's like this as well, um, I go in and rebuild sections, intervening where necessary, jumping in and making sure the track is working again so the train can go around the track, and then stepping back and letting my children um, enjoy it again for another couple of minutes. I want to ask you, is that the way that God rules his world? Is that the way that God is king? Is he a God who made something beautiful, who watched it get ruined by his people, And who is time and again stepping in, making amends, and then stepping back again into the heavens. Is that what God is like? Well, sometimes we can think a bit like that in the way that we talk and the way that we think. Maybe we use language like God was in that when things go well. Or God wasn't in that when things go badly. Or perhaps we thank God for the good things that he gives us in life. But we find it very hard to acknowledge that challenges and difficulties also come from his hand. We see him as involved in some areas, don't we? And I think uninvolved in other areas. But I want to show you that the Bible gives us a much bigger and much richer, and I want to say much more comforting view of God's omnipotence in this world. He's not just involved at some times and then removed at other times. He doesn't just jump in when things need a bit of rebuilding. He is personally involved in governing and ruling and providing for and being with and loving his creation in every place, for every person, at every moment in time, and he will be forever. So let's dig into a few areas in the Bible where we see God's rule. Firstly, he rules over creaturely things. Just uh, turn in the Bible to Psalm 104, where we're going to see this. You got page number, Jay? 605. 
So Psalm 104, I want you to see um, how God is involved in providing for his creatures in creation. We're going to have a look at uh, from verse 24. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the, the, the leviathan which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hands, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. This psalm tells us that God provides for every single one of his creatures in this world. Every creature looks to God to give them food at their proper time. So every worm that a bird flies down and plucks out of the ground is a worm given to that bird by God. Every little bit of plankton that a whale eats, I think whales eat plankton, they glide through the sea, is plankton given to it by God. God provides for all his creatures, both great and small. And he rules over the lifespan of these creatures as well. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, where he's assuring us of God's fatherly care, uh, down on the sheet, Matthew 10 verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, cheap and some might say insignificant. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Every sparrow which falls to the ground does so because it's God's will. He has planned the lifespan of every individual bird in his creation. But he doesn't just rule over the small things, he also rules over the big things. We could look at verses uh, in the Bible that talk of God ruling over the weather, over the wind, over the seas, sending every gust of wind, every shower of rain, every snowy storm, all of it controlled by the God of the universe. Isn't that amazing as you go out and feel the breeze? It's a breeze that God has sent um, that day. He's the God as well who raises up nations and who brings down nations, who establishes rulers and deposes of rulers. Psalm 33, uh, verse 10 on the, sh- on the sheet, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. All the way through the Old Testament, we see God raising up nations and raising up rulers and then bringing down nations and bringing down rulers. All of those kings acting according to their own desires and own wills. And yet God was sovereignly working through them all. As we see in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So God rules over creaturely things. He rules over the big things. Uh, Just turn over the page. He also rules over unpredictable things. One of the uh, practices in the Old Testament that is also in the New Testament at a couple of points is the casting of lots. It was a way to make decisions, a bit like we might roll a dice to make a decision. That's what lots was like. And it was seemingly random as people did this. But that seemingly random act was governed by God, as we see in Proverbs uh, chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, one implication of this, if you're a Christian, is that there is no place for chance or superstition in the world that we live in. Things don't happen in this world because we cross our fingers behind our backs or because we walk under ladders 
or because we throw salt over our shoulders. Things happen in this world because God has planned them to happen. He has decided the course of human history, and so there is no blind chance. There's no blind fate. The Lord is King. Which brings us to the fourth area that God rules over, and the hardest one uh, to think about. He rules over the bad things. This is one of the most difficult questions to grapple with as a Christian, I find. It's one of the most common objections to Christianity um, from those who don't believe the gospel. How could God allow suffering? How could God allow evil to exist in his world? We ask it because we personally experience suffering, personally have evil things done against us. And we ask it because of what we see around us in the world, don't we? You probably heard it phrased like this, either God is good, but not powerful, or God is powerful, but not good. Surely it's just one of those uh, options. Only one of those can explain the presence of evil and suffering in our world, so the argument goes. Now, I spent the week um, struggling with this question. I'm really struggling with it again and really feeling the weight of it um, again. It's not easy. And part of the difficulty, I think, is that sometimes we want to know answers to questions that aren't ours to ask or answers that aren't ours to know. I think John Piper is really helpful here in distinguishing between micro-level questions, he calls them, and macro-level questions. Micro-questions are things like, why am I suffering this way at this time in my life? Why did that particular tragedy happen to that group of people? Or why did that person commit that act of evil? The Bible doesn't give us answers to those specific questions, those micro-level questions. As we saw last week, God alone is all-knowing and all-wise. He alone has the whole tapestry of this creation in mind. But the Bible does give us some macro-level answers to the problem of evil and suffering. So let me give you some of those that we see in the Bible. The first thing is something that we've been seeing in Romans, uh, if you've been in a Romans group. Romans chapter 8, the whole creation is subject to frustration because of human rebellion and sin. The reality of our rebellion against God is so terrible that we are now suffering the terrible consequences of that rebellion as we live in this broken, groaning, suffering world. We are experiencing pain and suffering and evil because we are experiencing the effects of our rebellion against God. That's how terrible sin is. We also see in Romans 8 that this is not how things should be. Creation groans, we groan, and the Holy Spirit groans. God himself groans as we wait for the world to be restored. So we know, and God knows, that this world is not how it should be, and it's not how it will be one day. So that's the first thing to say. This is not how the world uh, was created to be and not how it will be forever. The second thing to say is that evil and suffering take place in our world because of the evil work of Satan and because of the evil desires of the human heart. God himself is not evil. He is thoroughly good. And so he is not forcing us to commit evil. People do evil because evil is there in our hearts. We carry out the desires that we want to do because those desires are there in our hearts. And those desires are not always good. God makes it very clear in his word that evil is evil. And he is the judge who will bring that evil to light in the end. He will bring perfect justice. He can see into the hearts of 
um, human beings, as we saw in Hebrews last week. He, he will right every wrong. So we need to say God will never overlook wickedness. He will never brush it aside. And we can be sure that any evil that has been committed against us or against others is known by God and will be judged by God. That's the second macro thing to say. Suffering is in the world because of sin, firstly. Sin will be judged by a just God. Evil is evil and God knows that. But the third thing to say, and this is where it gets more difficult, is that every bad thing that happens in this world is part of the sovereign will of God. Every bad thing that happens in this world is part of the sovereign will of God. Let me give you a few examples from the Bible. All of these begin with J, just proof that J is the best letter to start a name with. We're going to look at Job and, and Joseph and Jesus. So turn to Job. It's just before Psalms, so just the book before Psalms, um, right to the start of chapter 1. On page 509. Now you might know the story of Job. Job was a man who suffered terribly. And in the first chapter of Job, uh, we're given an insight into what was going on in the heavenly throne room of God. God allows Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And so Job loses his house, his possessions, his wealth, his children, finally his own health. Satan has been at work orchestrating this evil against God's servant Job. Job doesn't know any of those behind-the-scenes conversations between God and Satan. But just have a look at how Job responds when he suffers. Have a look at chapter 1 from verse 20. At this, this is after um, suffering uh, the death of his family members. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Listen to the next chapter. Just turn to chapter 2 and verse 7. This is where Satan inflicts Job with terrible sores, and here's how Job responds. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now in these chapters, the evil intent of Satan is very clear, isn't it? He's working out his evil purposes in this world. But at the same time, God is bringing about his sovereign plans. And so Job attributes his suffering not just to Satan, but to the hand of God. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Well, consider with me um, the story of Joseph. Joseph in Genesis was sinned against by his brothers. That much is clear from the narrative. Blood is on their hands. They've committed evil acts. And that evil is not excused by God. But Joseph also sees that in his suffering in Egypt, God has been working out his sovereign good plans 
both for him and for his world. So listen to the conversation between Joseph and his brothers. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. That's Joseph. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So his brothers were evil in their intent. They intended to harm Joseph. But there was another reality that Joseph was very aware of through his suffering and through his struggles. The reality of a good God bringing about his good purposes in and through human evil. But the final and best evidence of God ruling over the bad things that happen in the world is seen in the cross of Christ. So let me read to you a few verses from the book of Acts. The first is from the Apostle Peter. Um, Peter stands up and preaches to the people of Jerusalem. And he says this in Acts 2. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Do you see here we have both the wicked intent of human beings and the sovereign plan of God side by side? They put him to death with the help of wicked men, but they did so according to God's own foreknowledge and plan. They intended evil. God intended it for good. We'll have a look at Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. These are words uh, spoken to God. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They intended it for evil. God, had, God intended it for good. This is the clearest demonstration, isn't it, of God working out his plans through human wickedness. I'm going to skip over uh, that quote from John Newton. You can read it later. But let's just sum up. What have we seen about God's rule over evil and suffering? Well, we've seen that people are going about their evil schemes, doing what they want to do, carrying out their evil desires. Satan is roaming about on this earth, carrying out his evil schemes. But God is ruling over it all. He's not absent in those times when we feel a most terrible to bear. He does not step back when things get hard. He doesn't turn a blind eye at human evil. He has planned these things. Not because those things in themselves are good, that the evil is good, or that the desires behind those things are good. He's not saying that at any point. Or that the suffering is good. That's not what the Bible says either. But it says that God is so good and so wise and so powerful that he can bring about his good plans through it. Just think about some of the ways God brings good through suffering and evil. Let me just give you a few of them. There's loads we could say. When disasters happen in our world, some people are woken up to the reality of a judgment to come. When we suffer, God can use that suffering to transform us and those around us into the likeness of Jesus. When we see evil, people groan. We groan all the more for the new creation where that's going to be done away with forever. When we suffer, we come to know more deeply that God is enough. And we can trust him. Peter Sandlon writes in that quote on, on the sheet. It is often thought that suffering or evil resist or challenge God's power. 
The Bible's logic is that the sinful world provides a forum in which God displays all the more clearly the reality of his omnipotence. Or as Calvin writes, when the world appears to be aimlessly tumbled about, the Lord is everywhere at work. All this means that we can trust God in the storm. We can trust him in the hard things. We can trust him in suffering. We can trust him at all times. I'm going to read a longish quote that's not there on your sheet. Um, You can read the William Cowper verses in your own time from that hymn. Here's a quote from somebody called Herman Bavink, who asks us to view all of our, um, all the suffering and evil in relation to what we've been seeing about Jesus and the cross. Just listen to this quote. It's a bit long, but it's, it's really helpful. He says, for the natural human being, so many objections can be raised against God's cosmic government that one can only adhere to it with difficulty. But the Christian has witnessed God's special providence at work in the cross of Christ and experienced it in the forgiving and regenerating grace of God, which has come to one's own heart. And from the vantage point of this new and certain experience in one's own, he, the Christian believer, now surveys the whole of existence and the entire world and discovers in all things, not chance or fate, but the leading hand, the leading of God's fatherly hand. It is above all by faith in Christ that believers are enabled, in spite of all the riddles that perplex them, to cling to the conviction that the God who rules the world is the same loving and compassionate Father who in Christ forgave them all their sins, accepted them as his children, and will bequeath to them eternal blessedness. In other words, the God who rules this world is the God who came down and was nailed to the cross for sinners. He's a God we can trust in all things. God rules over the creaturely things, over the small things, over the big things, and even over the bad things. He is a powerful and good Lord. Now, the final question I just want to grapple with uh, for the remaining few minutes. It's just a small one, really, over on the other side of the page. Some of you might be thinking about, well, what about free will? Now, let me try and explain um, how we sometimes approach uh, this question. We sometimes approach it like this. We have God's sovereignty, his power on the one hand, and then we have human responsibility and choices on the other hand. And I think we tend to view them a little bit like a seesaw, that if you bring God's sovereignty up over here, then human responsibility goes right down over here. Or if you think about it, vice versa, and the seesaw goes up. If we put human responsibility higher and higher, then God's power and God's sovereignty gets lower and lower. Or we can think about it, if you're a science student and you like diagrams and pie charts, think about it like a pie chart. Um, We think that if this is the pie chart and God's will is here, the more that God's will and sovereignty takes up in the pie chart, the less and less human responsibility is left um, in the diagram. Now, I think both of those views are wrong ways to view uh, this question. It's much more like God's sovereignty is the all-encompassing reality and our um, responsibility fits within God's sovereignty. God is absolutely sovereign, as we've seen. He rules the world and he does so powerfully and effectively. Everything that happens is part of his good plan. And our responsibility sits within his will. We are never completely independent. So when somebody says, do we have free will? I want to ask, what do you mean by free? Because we're never free. 
from the God of the universe, are we? We are dependent upon him for everything, always, every single second of every single day. We are creatures in this world who rely on God for everything. But at the same time, we do have agency and we do have responsibility. We do the things we do because we want to do the things that we do. But all of that sits within the sovereign will of God. We've seen it, haven't we, in the story of Joseph. We've seen it most clearly at the cross of Jesus. Human responsibility and divine providence, divine sovereignty, hand hand in hand. It's captured there in Proverbs 16, verse 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course. That's what we do. We make decisions. We plan what we want to do. But the Lord establishes their steps. Why do we do the things we do? Because we want to do the things we do. And because God wants us to do those things as well. We have to hold both of those things together because both are taught really clearly in Scripture. We see it in Romans 9 and Romans 10, if you're in a Romans group. Why don't some believe the gospel? Well, Romans 9, because God hasn't chosen them. But Romans 10, because they haven't believed that message that they've heard, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We need to sit with this tension in the Christian life and know that we're not going to resolve it as human beings. Michael Horton writes this, we can know that, not how God's sovereignty and human responsibility are perfectly consistent. We can know that it's true. We don't know how it's true. But both are taught in scripture and both are taught for our good. For example, God's sovereignty comforts us in our lives, doesn't it? And responsibility leads us to action. God's sovereignty leads us to pray for people who don't know the gospel and who haven't believed the gospel. And human responsibility leads us to speak boldly to those same people. Don't fall off the seesaw one way or the other. We must, as Jim Packer writes... Think of reality in a way that provides for their peaceful existence, even though we're not sure how they work together. So that's all I've got for you, everyone. Probably got questions about that. Believe both of them as they're taught in Scripture. Live as if they're both true, because they are both true, even if we can't, in our minds, reconcile them together. Now, I'll put some resources down um, on your sheet if you want to think further about this or come and chat to me um, or real good leaders or each other. But I want to uh, conclude as we come to the end of this talk and as we come to the end of this series over these last eight weeks. Now, I think the application from this series uh, really boils down to one simple question. Will we let God be God? Will we let God be God? God in his glory, God in his power, his majesty, his goodness. God in all his mystery and incomprehensibility and wisdom. God in his grace and mercy and compassion. This series for me has been a little bit like um, turning a telescope the the right way around. Now, If you look through a telescope the wrong, wrong way around, everything seems really small and tiny. It doesn't work properly. You can look up to the moon and it just seems like a tiny little speck in the sky. But turn it the right way around... And everything looms larger, doesn't it? That's what I hope this series has achieved, to get you to turn the telescope around and to see the God of the universe, God in his greatness, the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God who we can trust no matter what comes our way in life, because he is the God who was nailed to the cross for sinners. I hope it's led you to rejoice in this God. I'm going to pray um, now and pray in thanks to the God 
who made us and who rules us. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that you are the Lord of all things, that you rule over everything in this world. Thank you that you rule over the small things, the big things, the things that we find unpredictable and uncertain, and even the bad things. Father, we look upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and we thank you that at that point of human wickedness and evil was the point at which you rescued humanity according to your good plans. Father, what a God we have who would do that for us, who would act in that way to redeem sinners for yourself forever. Father, we know that probably this talk and this series will have raised questions and difficulties and things to keep thinking through. But Father, above all, um, in all these things, would we trust you and trust your son, the Lord Jesus, that you've given, given us everything we need to be saved and right with you, and that we will know you, our God, and we will get to know you for all eternity as those who belong uh, to the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for all that we've seen in this series. We pray you'd be writing these things on our hearts and helping us to live them out. And we pray for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.